When we last left Jesus and the disciples, Jesus was on that last evening with his disciples in that time before he would be betrayed, as I said, the evening before he would be crucified. And as they gathered together, as we saw last time, they had a Passover meal together. And as a very important part of that Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with the disciples, he reinterpreted the elements of the Passover meal, in particular the bread and the cup. And he reinterpreted them in light of himself and in light of the new covenant that he was instituting with God. Now afterward, we found out after Jesus had that very moving, that very powerful exchange with his disciples, Luke tells us that they began to argue about which of them was the greatest which is like the funniest verse in the whole chapter, in a chapter that's pretty rare with funny verses. And there was, well, let's just start. I'll start reading here at verse 24, and we'll sort of ramp our way up to verse 28. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves at it? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Now verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is fascinating because in verse 29, Jesus makes a very dramatic promise to the disciples. He says to them, I bestow upon you a kingdom. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the way that Jesus meant this in these few verses seems to have a kingdom in the life beyond in mind. Look at how he phrases this. The kingdom that he describes is marked by two things. First of all, it says there that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. He's drawing on that image that's frequent throughout the Hebrew scriptures of the messianic banquet. You guys are going to have a special seat at the messianic banquet in the age to come. But that's not the only thing. He also says this, if you notice it in verse 30, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys are going to have positions of authority, positions of of power in the age to come. Now, this is what I think is fascinating about this. When Jesus said those words, I bestow upon you a kingdom, it's obvious that he largely had in mind a kingdom that would have to do with the coming age. Yet there's a very real sense in which it wasn't restricted to that either. Jesus came and he preached all around the the region of Galilee and everywhere he could this message of the kingdom of God. It's really essentially the message of the Sermon on the Mount. That God was reordering things and it was as if he was speaking this to the Jewish people. I am bringing a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom you expected. You expected a kingdom where suddenly the Jewish people would be lifted up to superpower status and the Romans would be destroyed and you guys would all have easy, cushy lives and everybody else would serve you. And Jesus said, no, that's not what my kingdom looks like. 
My kingdom looks like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. My kingdom looks like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. My kingdom looks along those lines, not along the way you've been thinking. This is a very important thing. Now, when Jesus said, I bestow on you a kingdom, they had to, to continue on the display of the kingdom on this earth. And they would be rewarded in a special way relevant to the kingdom in the age to come. That's what Jesus communicates to them. I mean, they would have a very special status in the kingdom of God. They would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 14 tells us that their names will be on the 12 foundations of the wall of the new Jerusalem. That is a remarkable, a remarkable promise that Jesus makes to them. Now, look, I want you to put this in the context of Jesus just exhorting them to servanthood. And one of the things that I think that Jesus is reminding them is that servanthood is rewarded. If you are a servant of God and men, as Jesus was, as he said back in verse 27, yet I am among you as the one who serves. Was there ever a greater servant than Jesus? And was there ever anyone more rewarded than Jesus was? I think what Jesus is telling these disciples, if you'll get your eyes off of the question, who is the greatest among us? And just be a servant like I'm a servant among you. You will find that you have plenty reward enough in the age to come. Don't worry about it. Isn't that how we should worry? Isn't that, excuse me, that, isn't that how we should uh, mold our thinking? God, I'll let you take care of the reward. I simply want to have the heart of Jesus Christ towards other people to be a servant of God and man. Now, in the context of that, let's go on to verse 31 now. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. By the way, stop right there. Isn't that powerful? It's powerful for three reasons. First of all, he didn't call him Peter. Peter, rock. That's sort of his new name. He calls him here according to his old name, so to speak. And I don't know if there's a great deal of spiritual importance there, but it certainly means something. He could have said Peter, Peter, but he doesn't. He says Simon, Simon. The second thing he does is he says his name twice. And you'll see this throughout the scriptures. Wherever God wants to place a special emphasis, a special emotion, a special heart in what he's saying, he'll repeat the name twice. So it's, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So it's Martha, Martha. So it is Simon, Simon. So what does he say to him? Follow it again here, starting at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Ladies and gentlemen, those are two draw-dropping verses. First of all, it is unbelievably jaw-dropping that Jesus looked at Peter and said, Satan has asked for you. Apparently, Jesus was aware of a spiritual battle behind the scenes that Peter was unaware of. Peter was no doubt ignorant of this. If you were to ask me, Peter, are you the special target of a satanic attack right now? No, of course not. But Jesus says, let me tell you something. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, he wants to wipe you out. He wants to completely, 
He wants you to be so undone so that you could be blown away like the chaff that's worth nothing. Satan wants to wipe you out. He wants to destroy you. But I tell you, does that make you incredibly depressed right now? To think, oh, who knows what the devil is asking God about you? Sometimes I tell people this and they have to be in the right frame of mind to receive it. But sometimes I have to tell people, you think it's bad in your life? It may be much worse than you even know. The spiritual reality behind what you're going through may be far worse than you ever recognized. You've got to come to grips with that. Now, that can be tremendously discouraging to anybody. But friends, look at what he says here. There's some glory here. Notice what it says. Satan has asked for you. In other words, Satan knew this, that because Peter belonged to Jesus Christ, he couldn't do a thing to him unless it was permitted by God the Father. Satan is on a leash regarding the believer. There are limits to what he can do against the believer. Now, I know you may feel very pestered and you may feel like, God, it's an awfully long leash he's on and I wish you'd shorten it some. And maybe it's not wrong for you to pray so. But listen, I don't know how bad you might be harassed by the devil right now in your life. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you this, that he wishes he could do worse against you than he's doing right now. And here's the other encouraging thing. Did you notice it? It says, verse 32, but I have prayed for you. You have Satan like a wild dog trying to devour, trying to eat up. Or if you want to use a more biblical picture, he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour uh, Peter there. And he's on a leash and he's begging, let me off the leash. I want to destroy this guy. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, lion, I'm going to tame you. I'm going to tame you with my prayers. I have prayed for you. Now, some of you think, oh, wouldn't that be so beautiful? Wouldn't it be so wonderful to know that Jesus prayed for me? You know, sometimes we get it strange in our mind that um, a a certain person has to pray for us. I, I know One time I kind of went up to a guy who was a great man of God in my eyes, a guy named Alan Redpath. And I was so thrilled by the idea that Alan Redpath might uh, pray for me. So thrilled by it that I kind of made a fool of myself in front of him. But that's a whole other story for another time. (laughs) But friends, here it is. It's that, wouldn't it be the most special thing of all to know that Jesus was praying for you? Here's the good news. If you're in Christ... He is praying for you. The Bible says it in both Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and in Revelation chapter 12, 10, that Jesus prays for his people, protecting them from Satan. Surely, and I don't mean this to be an exaggeration, surely there are many times in your lives that Satan would have wiped you out except for the fact that Jesus was praying for you. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for your people. Then notice this, what he says in verse 32. This is remarkable. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What? When you have returned to me. In other words, yeah, Peter, your faith is going to fail or, well, it's not going to fail completely. But you know what? You're going to go so far astray that you're going to have to return to me. And when you have, that's fine. When you've done that, get back to work and strengthen my brethren. 
I can imagine Peter's head is swirling after this. Wait a minute, Jesus, you just told me that my faith will not fail, but I'm going to depart from you in some way because I'm going to have to return to you. I don't have to return to you unless I've made some kind of departure. And at the end of that, you want me to strengthen my brethren. Isn't that beautiful? He says, listen, um, you're going to be disrupted in your walk. Then come back to me and strengthen our brethren. Now look at what Peter says, starting at verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Stop right there. Does anybody here think that Peter was lying? That Peter calculated, no way, man. I got it, my, I got it on my calendar. I'm going to deny him three times later on tonight, but I'll just say it because it'll make me look good in front of the other disciples. Nobody thinks that, do they? At this moment, Peter felt it with all of his heart. He had utter faith for the moment. He believed it at the moment. But then you and I know, because we're going to see it a little bit later on, you and I know That before the brutal interrogation of a little servant girl in front of a fire, a Girl Scout, you know, turns him to putty. Under the brutal interrogation from a Girl Scout, he basically denies Jesus, denies that he ever knew him. We sympathize with Peter here, don't we? Don't we have a tendency sometimes to make big promises to God that we don't fulfill? Here's the point. This is what we need to pray for and really seek God for is a faith that goes beyond the moment. You mean it at the moment, but God, I I want a faith that not only means it at the moment when I'm right here in church with you and among your people, but God, I want a faith that works at least out to my car in the parking lot. And, And then I'll pray for you for a faith that works even all the way on the drive home. And then, man, God be praised. Wouldn't it be amazing if I had a faith that actually worked on Monday, not just on Sunday? You see, this is what God wants to develop into us, not just the faith for the moment. So again, going back to the text, verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you know me. You get what the idea here is? (laughs) Peter, not only are you going to deny me, it's going to happen so fast that that rooster is not going to crow before you deny me three times. That's how fast it's going to happen. Peter, not just that it's going to happen. I'm not talking about 10 years down the road. Before the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. I'm absolutely convinced that Peter just figured, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Verse 35, and he said to them, now he's speaking to the whole disciples as a group. When I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this is which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. All right, we've got to unpack this. Because this was a very important conversation with his disciples 
in Luke's text, right before they leave the room that they were having the Last Supper in, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Basically, what Luke is telling us is that Jesus reported to his disciples that things were going to be different now that he departed. In other words, verse 36, now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. The idea seems to be something like this. I am on the point of leaving you. And when you guys were with me, there was sort of a protection you enjoyed just from my wisdom, just from my presence, just from me being with you. And you know what? You're not going to have that pretty soon. And so you're going to have to rely more just on wisdom and common sense than ever before. You, you didn't need to take such practical considerations before, but they're going to be needed now. And you see, before when Jesus sent out the disciples to do ministry with Jesus and sometimes apart from him, they were received with goodwill and hospitality. But Jesus is telling them, the world you're going to face after I leave is going to be a much more hostile world than you experienced when I was with you. So you better prepare for it. Because, look at it in verse 37, this which is written must still must be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I am going to be rejected. I am going to be crucified. This is going to happen now, and everything's going to change for you guys after that. And that's why he says in verse 37, for the things concerning me have an end. Did you see that line? It seems to have the sense of this. This will all be accomplished soon. All those predictions I made to you about me being rejected and crucified, now it's game on. Then did you notice the kind of strange thing that Jesus said to the disciples? Look at it here. He says, um, so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Does that seem strange to you? It seems strange to me. In other words, the disciples had a couple of swords with them. Now, I am told that especially when people were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, it was not unheard of for them to have some arms amongst them. There were robbers on the roads. So it's not like crazy that his disciples had swords. This isn't super unusual that they would have them. As we're going to see, it doesn't seem like they knew how to use the swords very well, but at least they had them with them. Now, they have a couple of swords. Lord, we've got two swords. Is this what you mean? And then do you wonder what Jesus meant when he said, it is enough? You see, when he was offered the two swords, Jesus said this, it is enough. And no doubt what he meant by this, it's probably not caught well by the English translation, but more so a proverbial phrase or an expression of speech in the original language. The idea is more of this, enough of this kind of talk. It was a firm way of ending the conversation. Jesus did not mean, friends, there's no way he could have meant this. The two swords are going to be enough to protect me against the guys that are going to arrest me in a couple hours. Jesus didn't mean that. It would have been crazy to say that. Jesus knew it wasn't. It wasn't like it was enough to do battle with swords. Of course not. One commentator says this. Jesus' answer, enough of this, is to be preferred to that of it is enough. The latter might imply that Jesus affirmed the disciples' suggestion, acknowledging that two swords would be sufficient for the conflict, but the context clearly rules out that rendering. No, what Jesus was saying is, basically, stop, stop. What are you guys, crazy? Enough of this. We got to go. And they went. Now, can I give you a little glimpse of church history here? 
There was a pope of the Roman Catholic Church who around 1300 issued a papal decree called Unum Sanctum. His name was Boniface VIII. And in Unum Sanctum, he built on this text, his text, his doctrine that the pope had the right to exercise secular authority as well as spiritual authority. That the pope was basically king of the world. That the pope had all secular authority and the pope had all spiritual authority. Now you might say, again, I wouldn't agree with it, but I can see how a Roman Catholic would say it. Yes, the Pope has all spiritual authority. Again, I don't agree with that, but I see how they make that. You say, how would anybody ever say that the Pope has all secular authority in the world? He based it on this passage saying, oh, the Pope has two swords. Because Jesus had two swords, and so the Pope has two swords. And one sword is spiritual authority, and one sword is secular authority. That's not a very good examination of the Scripture. To say that the Pope has all authority, both spiritual and and secular. But that's just a little tidbit from church history. Going on now to verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Please notice that phrase in verse 39. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. Jesus had spent his nights that week in Jerusalem upon the Mount of Olives. I don't know if he spent it in a little shelter. I don't know if he spent it camping out under a tree. Um, There is a cave where there's a wine press that dates back to those times. Maybe he spent it in the little cave that's right there in that area. That area of Gethsemane. Gethsemane basically means an olive press. It's a place where olives were pressed. They would grow them and then press them for their oil. So Jesus refused to change his routine. He basically went back to his house, even though it wasn't a house literally, but back to where he was staying. He went back to where he was staying, knowing that Judas would know exactly where to find him. Isn't that significant? Jesus didn't mix up his routine at all. It's like the guy who knows that he's being followed and the police will be waiting for him at his house, yet he deliberately goes to his house knowing that the police will be waiting for him or coming soon. That was exactly the situation with Jesus going to his accustomed place at the Mount of Olives. He knew that Judas could easily find him. And when he went there and was ready to pray himself, before he himself prayed, he spoke to his disciples and he told them to pray. And he said, verse 40, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, as Jesus began to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, Luke doesn't identify it as the Garden of Gethsemane. He just says on the Mount of Olives. But both Matthew and Mark specifically identify it as the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus began to pray there, he began by warning the disciples of their need to pray. You see, Jesus had to pray for himself so that he would have the strength to endure the ordeal he was about to face. 
But he also knew that the disciples would have their own ordeal. And he cared so much about them. Friends, I'm just absolutely amazed that Jesus could have a single thought on behalf of his disciples at this moment. I don't know about you, but extreme pressure situations, I don't tend to be thinking a lot about others. I'm thinking about myself and about my own difficulties, my own agony. Jesus never did that. He was aware of the battle that he was about to face, both in prayer and then following. Yet he compassionately and carefully tells his disciples, pray that you would not enter into temptation. And what he means by enter into temptation, more literally, the idea is there to give into temptation. Don't be overcome. It's to be um, uh, under the power of the temptation that is offered before you. You guys better pray so that you don't fail in this temptation that you're going to face. Jesus knew this, that his world was going to be rocked, but he also knew that the world of the disciples was going to be absolutely turned upside down. You guys better pray so that you have the strength to endure this. So what did he do? Verse 41, after he warned the disciples, verse 41 says that he knelt down and prayed. Friends, one of the things that I think is very obvious about this is that this was an eyewitness account. I don't believe for a moment Luke was there. Luke, of course, wasn't there. Luke was in another part of the Roman Empire when this happened. But Luke, no doubt, interviewed the disciples who were there. He talked to the men who were there because who else would know that Jesus didn't just pray, but that he knelt down and prayed. Who else would know that Jesus did it just verse 41 about a stone's throw away. That's the kind of detail that only an eyewitness would remember. Yeah, I was there when Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Man, he was just this far away from me. And so this was reported to Luke by an eyewitness who said, I saw him kneel down and pray. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? This was not the common posture of prayer in that culture. The common posture of prayer in Jewish culture at that time was to stand and to lift up your hands. This was the common posture of prayer. I don't know what your common posture of prayer is. You know, maybe your common posture of prayer is to sit you know, you, you, you have your forearms on your knees kind of and hands folded like that. Maybe it's to stand. Maybe you like to pray while you walk. Uh, some of you, maybe your, your prayer life takes place pretty much when you're horizontal and you don't have much of a prayer life then. It tends to be more just kind of seeking the Lord in dreams, right? That's what you're really trying to do. But what I'm trying to say is that to kneel as you prayed was an unusual thing. It wasn't unheard of, but it was notable. Jesus didn't pray here as he usually prayed, but in a unique mark of submission and surrender to his father, he got down on his knees and he began to pray. And look at what he prayed. Verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Does anybody think that Jesus had no idea what the Father's will was? No, he knew what the Father's will was. He probably knew it and he knew it for years. He might have known it from his boyhood. I'll tell you, he knew it for sure from the beginning of his ministry. 
I'm always struck by what John the Baptist said to Jesus when he first laid eyes on Jesus. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to the place where John's baptizing. And he sees him from a distance and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, friends, do you know how a lamb took away sins in that culture? A lamb didn't take away sins by dancing around the meadow. A lamb took away sins by getting its throat cut and bled and sacrificed. I mean, John couldn't have been any more clear if he would have said to Jesus, Behold, the man who's going to die as a sacrifice for everybody's sins. That's what he said. So it's not as if Jesus was ignorant of the Father's will. But notice what he prays. If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Jesus did not suffer from a lack of desire to do God's will. It's not like, well, maybe I want to do God's will. Maybe I don't want to. No, he wanted to do God's will with all of his heart. Yet there was something in his life. There was something in his heart that trembled when he beheld the cup that the father offered to him. Now we understand we're not talking about a literal cup. Do we understand this? Jesus is drawing on an image that is heavy in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, there's several places, and we'll take a look at these scriptures in just a moment. But in the Old Testament, there are many passages which speak of the idea that there is a cup of judgment in the hand of God. And God comes to his enemies and he makes them drink that cup of judgment. Well, let's look at some of these passages in the Hebrew scriptures. Look at it here, Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Look at this, Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Or Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Do you understand what the cup represented? The cup did not represent death. It's not as if Jesus was fundamentally hesitant about death, but what the cup represented was judgment. I believe that Jesus was unafraid of death itself. And when he had finished his work on the cross, that work of receiving and bearing and satisfying the righteous judgment of God, the father upon our sin. When he finished that work, what did Jesus do? He simply yielded his spirit to God and he died. Jesus actually died very peacefully. But before he died on the cross... It was if God the Father made him drink the cup of judgment that Jesus had never tasted before in his life. He had never known any degree of separation from his father. He had experienced his whole life nothing but beautiful, sweet, 
unbroken communion and sharing of life with God the Father. That was his entire existence. He had known nothing of that separation, nothing of that darkness of soul. And not only would he experience it as a drop or two, friends, it would come upon him as if a mighty dam, as if Hoover Dam exploded and all of that water came crashing down upon a person. That's how it was going to come crashing down upon Jesus. And what Jesus prayed when he said those words, when he said, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Matthew, I think, gives us an even clearer account of Jesus' intent there where he says, Father, if it is possible, any other way. But there was no other way. Did the father answer the prayer of the son? Absolutely he did. The father came to the son and he said powerfully and eloquently, my dear son, there is no other way. It is my will that you drink this cup and it is your will too because we want so much to have humanity reconciled to us that we will undergo this together. You must drink that cup. That's why Jesus said in verse 42, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. You could say that Jesus came to a point of decision in Gethsemane. It wasn't that he hasn't desired or or consented before, but now he came to a unique point of decision. You could say that he drank the cup on the cross at Calvary, but he decided once for all, forever, no way, there's no turning back. I am going to drink it right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his face was set like flint towards the fulfillment of God's will. Think about it, what happened there in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, a sinless man was sorely tested in a garden and he won the battle and brought eternal life to every tribe and every tongue upon the earth. Now, do you remember a previous garden? Do you remember that before this, that a sinless man was tested in a garden and he failed? And when that sinless man failed in that garden, what happened? Death and judgment spread out to the entire race. Now a second Adam, a second sinless man has come into another garden and he says, I'm going to win it back. And that's what Jesus Messiah did. Verse 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I need to say something here. These two verses, verses 43 and 44 of Luke chapter 22, are the subject of some debate regarding the manuscript evidence for their inclusion. Some modern translations exclude them as not belonging to the original. Now, from the little that I've looked into the manuscript evidence, I would include them. Though again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just know how to read some of the guys who are. But I I like what one commentator named Pate said about these. He said this, 
the text critical difficulty of verses 43 and 44 does not admit to a conclusive answer. The oldest manuscript evidence is divided. So to me, if the evidence is divided and there's not a conclusive reason to exclude them, I would include these two verses. And what happens in them? Well, first of all, verse 33, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. In response to Jesus' prayer, the Father did not take the cup from Jesus, but he strengthened Jesus even by angelic messengers to be able to take and drink the cup. And perhaps these angels, it almost makes me sad to say this, perhaps these angels had to do this work of comforting and strengthening Jesus because where were his disciples at this time? Asleep. I mean, I really believe that this was the disciples' work to do. But the disciples are not there, and the Father said, No, my son will not go uncomforted. My son will not go without strength in this situation. If there are no men, if the disciples are asleep, then I'll send an angel to do it. Matter of fact, multiple angels. Verse 44, it says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and in that agony... He prayed to the point where his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't need to burst any bubbles here, but we need to take very close attention to what the text says. The text does not say that Jesus' sweat was blood. It says that it was like blood. Either in the way that it poured forth from his brow. In other words, So much sweat was coming off his brow. It was like a cut was bleeding from his brow. Or because the sweat that came off his brow was tinged with blood, perhaps from burst capillaries on his brow. And there have been cases of this. There have been cases of people who were under such intense mental pressure, such intense focus, that capillaries upon their brow burst and their pores are so dilated that the sweat that pours forth from them is tinged with blood. But again, I just want to make sure, it's not as if pure blood was pouring forth as if it were sweat from Jesus. No, no, no. He sweat as if it was like blood. But notice really what it says there in verse 44. He prayed more earnestly. He bent as if it were all of his nerves. It's as if every aspect of his being was stretched out. If the disciples would not pray with him, then Jesus would extend himself to the fullest extent to try to try and honor God in his devotion. Let's conclude with these last two verses here of the text this evening. Verses 45 and 46. When he rose up from prayer... And had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. That's awfully generous to the disciples. Don't you think? Then he said to them. Why do you sleep? Rise and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. Jesus was so filled with sorrow. That he said I have to pray. The disciples were so filled with sorrow. That they said I have to sleep. The master is always greater than the disciples. 
But notice this. Aren't you amazed at Jesus' attitude here? Look at it right here. What does he say in verse 46? Look, let let me read to you from the David Guzik version. Uh, Why do you sleep? Get up and give me a little bit of help. Can't you see that I'm dying out there? Wouldn't have been appropriate if Jesus said that. Guys, do I got to fight this battle all on my own? Some disciples, you are. Give me a little hand here. No, but even at that moment where you might have expected Jesus to show the slightest splinter of selfishness, instead, his concern is for the disciples. Why do you sleep, rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation? Guys, it's all going to come crashing down upon me in a few moments, but it's also going to come crashing down upon you. I need to pray and seek the Father, but so do you, so that none of you fall away. I wonder if there's not this ache in Jesus' mind where he says, Judas is already lost. I don't want to see a single other one of you lost. It's going to come upon you as well. Now, friends, there's so many things that we can draw from this. First and foremost, we draw our unbelievable gratitude to Jesus Christ that he went through all of this for us. I mean, this was for you. This is for me. This is for his people. Despising the shame, he pressed forward for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is us. What he won at the cross. So we rejoice in that. But we also see in a very powerful and practical way, in our seasons of great pressing, there's no one here greater than Jesus. There's no one here who needs to pray any less than Jesus needed to pray. No, it's quite the opposite. If Jesus needed to rely on God so much here, how much more do we need to in our moments? So Lord, teach us to pray and thank you for praying for us, Jesus. Let's pray that right now. Jesus, this whole section here just seems to be kind of soaked with prayer. And Lord, we we just want to draw back to the remembrance of how you prayed for Peter and you pray for all of your beloved, all of your saints. So Jesus, knowing that, first we say, Jesus, teach us to pray. We need to pray, not only in our moments of great temptation and danger, but we need to pray so that we would not fail under future moments of danger and temptation. But even more than our need to pray, Lord, we trust in you who pray for your people. Thank you, Lord. We bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.